Welcome to Interviews. Being an entrepreneur is the toughest job ever. There are no practical guidelines. So I created this podcast to help crack the entrepreneurship code. Join me every week as I invite entrepreneurs to share their stories, the practical tips and lessons they've learned along the way. Don't be the main bottleneck in your business. Subscribe now. Interviews is brought to you by Social Prize, a marketing and communication agency operating remotely since 2005. Social Prize specializes in digital technologies and communication, web development, e-commerce, remote working, coaching, training, growth hacking. Log on their website, socialprize.me. Hi, thank you for listening. Today, I'm with Steve Meluish, the co-founder and former CEO of Property Guru in Singapore. Founded in 2007, Property Guru has become Asia's largest online property portal. It is used by 35 million monthly consumers. It has 1,300 staff and it's valued over $1 billion. So this makes you, Steve. The biggest entrepreneur I have ever received on my podcast so far. <laughs> and Steve is also the founder and CEO of Planet Rise, his new venture. Hello, Steve. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Laurent. Thanks very much for having me. Look forward to having a chat with you today. Uh, me too. Me too. We're going we're gonna to have a lot to talk about. So tell us about your journey towards becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, that's a very long, long story, but uh, um, I, I guess there's, there's, there's some, some little threads, I think. So for, um, uh, my father was, a, was in the army, and, uh, and so I was an army brat, and we, we, we moved home and school and, I guess, friends for me every two years. And uh, um, I think that kind of contributed a little bit to my lack of academic success. So uh, mm. I remember coming home uh, when I was a kid, and my, my, my mom. Uh, was crying and uh, and I asked her why she was crying and she said that uh, the school had called her in to say that Steve would uh, uh, would amount to nothing would be a failure in life. Um, wow! And um, uh, and uh, you know I guess to a certain extent I was true from an academic group. I ended up getting you know three Ds in my in my you know the highest quality qualifications in the, in school, um, but but it did have a bit of an impact on me and I, and I, I it kind of made me uh, want to prove people wrong um, mm. and I guess I've always had that, that kind of drive to kind of um, to, to prove people wrong and so throughout my you know work life um, that's been a core driver and just uh, it's driven a little bit of the work ethic behind what I do and just constantly trying to push myself and uh, to make sure that I'm, I can do better and prove and prove them wrong mm. um, so I, I spent the first 10 years of my life um, in, in a corporate environment um, working in telco and uh, it shows how old I am but the, this was like 1990s into 2000s and um, for those who are old enough uh, like me um, it was uh, the kind of the, the dot-com boom and also the telco boom and so you know it had, it had a whole new stuff happening it had fiber optic cables being rolled out you had new uh, internet service providers you had content companies you know, in those days, it was like AOL and Yahoo. And, but, uh, you know, in the early days of, of the dot-com boom and internet and telco all, all growing. And, and I, the stuff that I was doing in that first 10 years was all kind of quite pioneering stuff. It was, 
new markets opening up and regulations a little bit gray and going in and building a new team to open up a new market, whether it's working with the new mobile operators or the new telcos or new content internet companies. Um, and um, I, I absolutely kind of love that, that kind of that pioneering, slightly gray, maverick kind of thing. Um, and, and I did really well at the career and I really, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed most of it. Um, but what, so all the stuff I enjoyed was like the whole building and, you know, the new business and the pioneering new technology and this whole exciting, uh, changes going on and building teams. But what I didn't like was then at a dot-com bust happening was then dismantling everything and then increasingly having to play politics and bureaucracy in a large organization. So I, I, I realized that actually, you know, I like to create things, I like to build things. I don't like to have a boss. I don't like to be told what to do. Um, and that to me then becomes very clearly an entrepreneur. Um, I, so I, um, I went traveling for six months with my girlfriend, now wife, and I uh, ended up with a post-it note on my wall, which said Digital Asia Startup. Um, and I had already at that stage started a company in, in the UK, which was, helping large companies to innovate and small companies to scale, you know, like startups to scale, you know, companies like Skype, for example, mm-hmm. in the early days. Um, but, um, you know, I, that, that was kind of the really formation of that, you know, wanting to become, a, I guess, a true entrepreneur in terms of having control over your destiny and, and making the rules up as you go along, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so how did uh, Property Guru uh, come up? Yeah, so um, uh, so I ended up in Singapore in, in 2005 and I had been angel investing and, and working with startups and uh, had already started my own startup. And I, I ended up running a mobile content business um, with, the, with the founders of the organization. And, um, and in 2007, the whole property market in Singapore exploded and, uh, um, and I was renting a property. I had to move out really fast. Mm. And um, so what I did was the first thing I did was to go, kind of go online because you know, back in Europe, uh, everything was online, whether it's travel, jobs, cars, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing is all online. Uh, and um, even though Singapore on the outside looking in looked like a high tech environment, the actual adoption of technology was fairly low and Internet was still fairly low in those days. Mm-hmm. And so I was faced with the prospect of, uh, believe it or not, going through, you know, like that thick, you know, thick newspapers of three lines of text looking for real estate, looking for property to rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hell because I didn't know, you know, it said Villa Marina, telephone number. You know, no photographs, no video, no floor plan, no maps, no description, nothing, right? Um, and even though I was renting, you know, not a particularly expensive place, um, you know, if you were to buy a property in Singapore in those days, it was around about, you know, half a million dollars, right? Um, now close to a million dollars. And, um, and if you don't have kind of that information in your hand, it's going to be really frustrating. So it kind of got me a bit curious. Uh, so I started to research it uh, and realized that, you know, in France, in Germany, in the UK, in Japan, in China, Australia, you know, around the world, these kind of real estate pools had existed for, for a few years and they were very, very profitable. And it seemed to kind of the business models seemed to translate across different you know, cultures and borders. So it looked like, it looked like an interesting business model, um, which could be profitable. And then if you think about the Southeast Asia context, you know, 700 million people um, increasingly urbanizing, moving into cities, cities of like 2 million becoming 5 million, becoming 10 million, becoming 20 million. So urbanization, middle-class growth, GDP growth, you know, adding one or 2 million people every year into the population who are going to need houses, right? And so the next 40, 50 years, you're going to have this big housing construction boom 
Um, so you had this big macro opportunity. You had a business model which seemed to kind of work. Um, and the only thing that kind of scared me a little bit was that no one had done it before. Yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. It seems so obvious to me. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, I guess we saw the early stages of internet adoption taking place. You know, so you had banks starting to do internet banking. You had low-cost airlines doing credit card booking. You had a little bit of e-commerce in those days, eBay. And so it was starting. And so it looked interesting. And uh, as I researched it and I put together a business plan, I pitched it to an investor friend of mine. And he introduced me to my co-founder, who a Finnish guy, um, really super smart guy. Uh, and so he and I started working part time and now we went full time, basically. Today, like I mentioned, it's it's huge. You know, the valuation of the one billion US, uh, yeah. 1300 staff. So let's let's talk a little bit about this 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 scale up. How, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I, it wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't kind of like from two people to 300 people, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was kind of, um, I mean, there were a lot of mistakes in the middle of all of this as well, right? But, uh, you know, we started off with two people um, and, you know, we kind of just bootstrapped and hacked the whole thing together initially. Uh, and, you know, in, in, you know, faced with fighting against two, you know, billion dollar monopolies, um from a from a tv and newspaper point of view um and so we kind of we got together a small team of five people initially and kind of just to start to get you know the mvp kind of going to see whether you know people would actually would actually you know get benefit from this can we actually create value you know so can we get people to the website they search for something find something and then you know interact and, and, and transact with a seller or a real estate agent and um, and, we, and, and it happened, you know, um, we, we initially had like free listings, which we were typing in, which were wrong. <laughs> uh, they were for sale instead of for rent. They were 5,000 instead of 50,000, whatever. I mean, it was uh, lots of mistakes. And um, but we were starting to generate leads because at that stage, a lot of uh, foreigners were starting to move into Singapore. Mm. And so the population went from about four and a half million to about five and a half million quite quite rapidly because of this influx of foreign foreigners coming into the country and those foreigners were used to using the internet in their home country so almost uh, 100% of our users initially for the first year were just uh, foreigners essentially looking right. from and researching many cases from from France or Germany or the US wherever they're coming from before arriving in, in Singapore um, and so, yeah, so our first job was really just to kind of prove the concept. Can we actually create some value? And so we, we had some agents where they were getting, you know, wrong inquiries because it's for sale instead of for rent. We had agents who were, you know, for nothing, were generating ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of commission. Um, and so we started to charge. Um, and for charging, then they could list at the top. And so we, in the first four years, we kind of went from zero to 1,000 agents paying to 4,000 agents paying the next year and then 10,000 agents paying. And it became cash flow positive, profitable business. And, you know, we built, you know, 75% market share um, mm. business in Singapore, still relatively small in those days, uh, but still, you know, a dominant player in, in, in Singapore. And so the first focus for us was really, can we build a beachhead market in one country that can prove the unit economics work and, and it can become a profitable business? Once we did that, we said, okay, now we've proven it. Let's just cut and paste and roll it out across the rest of Southeast Asia. Right. Uh, completely stupid. Completely stupid. <laughs> okay. Uh, a big, big mistake because um, for those who know Southeast Asia, or, or I guess most countries, 
they're, they're not, they, they look they might look the same but they're not the same i mean southeast asia is, is a group of you know a group of about 12 12 countries i think um all have different levels of economic maturity regulations mm -hmm. uh you know internet maturity and this kind of thing so um yeah languages culture everything and so we went one, one market which took about four years to then four markets in four months um and okay. then we hired we hired about 250 people we lost 250 people we oh. hired 250 people we lost 250 people or what the big lesson for us the big issue that we that we mistake that we made in this this kind of rapid scale-up phase other than thinking naively that you just go from one market to multiple um which is stupid was um that the whole of the organization was focused just on singapore so we had hmm. Finance, sales, marketing, product, tech, all focused on Singapore. So Singapore is innovating every week. There's new, new, you know, innovation and features coming out, and the team was selling, and the business was growing like this. And then we said, oh, by the way, build the website for Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, mobile apps for consumers in Android and uh, iOS, and for the agents in Android and iOS mm. in multiple languages all at the same time, come up with a pricing plan, hire all these people, train all these people, launch in all these markets. And um, so all the Singapore team got super, super, super stretched because they were now looking at building all these other markets, and including the product and tech team. Um, and then obviously we had one technology platform, which we wanted to keep the same for all four. But, you know, then Malaysia had some tweaks and then Indonesia had some tweaks and Thailand yeah. had some tweaks. And suddenly we had four different codes <laughs> um and then you had to fix a bug on one country and then you had to fix a bug on another country so then the whole innovation machine that was happening uh, which was driving a lot of the the growth suddenly ground to halt because we went from innovating for singapore to then bug fixing across four different countries um and stretching all these people so we, you know we 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 almost broke the company um wow. uh just because we tried to we tried to run before we could walk you know we uh, we try to do too much and it was very naive in, in hindsight um when i tell the story now it just seems so stupid uh, <laughs> why 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 and the question i always ask was why did we do that um and um and you know the 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 reason that i keep coming back to on this was you know is uh, i think quite often entrepreneurs i meet have this um healthy sometimes unhealthy but paranoia Mm. Uh, and that, that that you know the business is going to die, or it's going to be taken over, or it's going to be crushed, or or you're going to miss out on the opportunity. I had this unhealthy or healthy, whichever way you want to look at it, paranoia. That look, what is our business? It's just a website, and you know, we were getting people, you know, cloning our website and posting mm. on these, you know, developer websites, cloning the property Euro website. And so I was really worried that you know just to, to do to build property Euro was basically you just have to clone the website and, and, and the barrier entry almost zero, right? Within three weeks, you could have a property euro. That's what I thought. And so if we didn't go into all these markets super fast, then someone else would come along and beat us to it. Right. Uh, Bit of an ego I, there maybe too. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. No, I mean, I, I think there's definitely an ego issue, which I kind of discovered later on. But I think, <laughs> I think at that stage, it was more paranoid. I think it was more about, look, we were worried we we're going to miss the opportunity. Mm. um so so we said okay look, we identified these four markets let's just let's let's make it happen super fast in hindsight had we gone singapore to what's the next most attractive market let's double down really do that market really well and the next one that would have been the most sensible thing to have done 
because yeah. um, as I said, we almost broke the company and then we had to kind of backwards repair over about two years, um, putting in place, for example, the leadership organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had to make mistakes around that as well, because, you know, we were hiring country managers, uh, which were like mini CEOs from mm. Malaysia, Indonesia and Thailand. We weren't paying them like a CEO. And so they were maybe not a quality of a CEO and therefore, and they may defer to their, their strengths. And so one might be more marketing, one might be more operations, one might be more sales. So then every country had its own culture and processes which were developed in each country. Right. So we then had to kind of rethink about the organizational structure. We kind of went to more of a sort of centralized structure. So you'd have consistent HR, finance, mm-hmm. you know, sales and marketing processes with some localization on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and then from a product and tech point of view, you know, you know, we kind of thought that the way in which consumers look for real estate in Singapore would be similar to how they do it across all markets. But Singapore is very different. You know, in Singapore, a lot of people live in these condo high, you know, high towers. Yeah. Um, in uh, in Thailand, they're interested in neighborhoods. So it's like Sukhumvit or Salom or Tonglo neighborhoods. Um, yes. And so map became very important uh, where the where the BTS and MRT stations were. Um, so that was so we kind of had to localize the UX in each market mm. as well. So we made a lot of mistakes and kind of had to retrofit um, and fix like the the code platform, for example, back onto one platform, which basically you know took a lot of time. Um, and uh, in our rush to try and do everything in one go, you know, we kind of caused more problems for ourselves. Yeah. So then then the last stage of that was really around sort of professionalizing the organization, you know, so. You know, to really to, to build the next scale of growth once you fix these problems getting the you know hiring the c-suite and the middle managers um, and putting some systems in place you know hiring the cfo with a proper erp system you know hr with hr tech you know cmo with uh, martech and actually you know supporting the the future growth to grow to allow us to grow from a few hundreds to then to over a thousand staff you know just building that professionalized organization um, mm. and, and ensuring accountability, you know, because uh, that w- it was also a transition, you know, because you, you go from doing all of the work, so, you know, getting the, sh- getting the shit done yeah. to making sure the shit gets done to then building an organization that can get that shit done, you know. And so you got those kind of those three phases and that professionalization phase is kind of, you know, where at that point was when I kind of, uh, at, this, at the end of stages that I decided to kind of step out from the business. Well, so, you know, there was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lot sorry, sorry. But what is, what is interesting, you often hear, you often hear uh, other, other entrepreneurs saying, successful entrepreneurs saying, watch out, don't grow, don't grow too fast, which is yeah. exactly what, what happened to you. So yeah. basically what, I, what, I, what I'm hearing is build the foundations first. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Right. Yeah, I think um, my realization is that, you know, if you go back to that comment I made before about healthy paranoia is that we were worried we we're going to miss the opportunity. But actually what, what I now realize is things just take longer than you think. Mm. Um, and, you know, so everyone talks about disruption, digital disruption, like, you know, this all happening, all this digital disruption is happening now. Um, but actually it's been 25 years coming, right? Um, all of all the big tech companies have been around for 25 years in many cases. And so it just takes time. And um, it's a rather than rush, do smaller number of things 
in a quality way, in a more focused way. Mm. Um, particularly as a startup, you don't have much resource, right? So rather than spread that resource super thin, focus it on the one or two key things that you want to do. Uh, in our case, that would have meant one country to the second country. And then, the, the, then which leads me to my second point, what I hear is, it's great to internationalize, but know your market before. Yeah. Don't assume yeah, that no, the next yeah. market is exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I think, you know, having that, having that beachhead market to, 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 to rely on and fall back on, uh, I think for us was really, really important. You know, so whenever it came to, look, you know, we're stretching resources in these other markets, we've always got the Singapore business, which, you know, if all else fails, is a very profitable, valuable business in its own right. Um, and so I think for me, so when I work with, you know, startups and founders today, you know, it's one of the key things I, I, I focus a lot on is just, you know, making sure that you've really focus on that, you know, core market, get the core market right. Don't just scratch the surface and then run off to lots of other markets. Go deeper on that first market, you know, learn the lessons, you know, get the understanding before you, before you expand. Right. I think yeah. Airbnb made the same mistake. As yeah, it, yeah, exactly. When they started, yeah, okay. And so you mentioned something else of studies that is interesting. It's because you started with this with nothing. You were two of you, and then you yeah. built this massive company. So you, as the CEO, you your role must has changed has changed a lot. And one of the risks that I see uh, with entrepreneurs is that you know they become the main bottleneck bottleneck of their own business because you're, they got they got in their own way. Yeah, Lauren, you're absolutely right. Yeah. How did you how did you see that you had to change? Yeah, um, well, I think um, it was a little bit of self learning um, uh, and realization that what what we were doing wasn't working. So it was. It, I remember. I remember very vividly having in the middle of all of this uh, mess, this internationalization mess, when we'd started to build the leadership organization. Um, and it wasn't working. Mm. Um, and so we had, you know, these country managers and we had, you know, various leaders and CFO and CFO, and it, but we weren't getting, you know, accountability and decision-making happening on the ground, you know? So for example, there'd be right. a problem in, in Indonesia, for example, and invariably it meant me or my co-founder flying in to try and fix the problem. And I remember having a, you know, we I, I had a coach, and uh, we specific, he specifically, you know, spent time on accountability, uh, which was because we became the main bottlenecks because it's just the two mm. of us. There's only so many hours. We were working, you know, obviously seven days a week and 14 hour days uh, for the first five years or six years or so. Um, but to a certain point when the organization scales and all of those people are sort of coming into you, yeah. it, that's, not, that's, not, that's not scalable. That's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and we were getting frustrated because we had these leaders, but they're not making decisions. They were not taking account. And so uh, this coach basically just put a mirror in front of our faces and said, so there's a problem. What happens? Uh, we have to go in and fix it. And so why do you think there's no accountability and decision-making and, and ownership in the organization? Put the mirror up to our face. And it's basically because we were going to fix the problems. You know, as, yeah. so as entrepreneurs at the start, you know, get shit done. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting stuff done. The next stage is, you know, you're actually starting to make sure that, you know, things get done, but actually you're probably still playing a role. But the third stage is the organization needs to do, to do stuff, right? The organization yes. needs to make decisions and have accountability. So it wasn't until we realized that, that we had to sort of stand back and, uh, you know, kind of empower and trust 
the leaders to make their own decisions and actually, you know, hold them to account. But that was a really hard thing. And I, I really, really struggled with that process because, you know, as entrepreneurs, you just kind of want to make sure everything works and you have, you know, you're focusing the detail and, and you're learning from that the whole time. But, you know, you can't do that as the organization scales beyond, you know, 200 people. Well, I'm happy to hear that you use a coach, a coach to help yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I had, I, had, you know, I had different coaches throughout the whole process. You know, my wife was a long-suffering coach, but uh, I, you know, I, I belong to this entrepreneur organization, EO. And so right. you know, every month, four-hour meeting with those guys, with other, you know, eight other entrepreneurs uh, as a support network, and then coaches for different parts, I think, like building a sales organization, accountability, succession planning. Yes. You know, so, yeah, I, I think... Um, Uh, and that's again a reflection of working with some of the founders I work with today. The good ones know how to build organizations, but now are humble enough to learn. You know, they 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 understand the mistakes and they're willing to learn and they're constantly learning and improving. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's a really important trait. Right. Yes, I agree. And so today you you took a step back uh, yeah. from uh, from the company. And so you, you mentioned succession plan. How did you how did you come up with that? Yeah, so for me, the, the driver was, um, you know, whilst I've been focused on building the business, my, my wife was very keen to have kids. And I guess we were keen to have kids. And it took a long, 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 long time. And eventually, you know, after lots of effort and uh, fertility process, we ended up with twins. Um, right. uh, in fact, you know, the, the week that we, um, the twins were born is when the week that we had our first big investment Um, and so that whole process. And so, so um, the kids were approaching three years old mm -hmm. uh, and I hadn't really seen them grow up in the first three years of their life. And I, get, I got a bit scared. I, I, I got to, you know, I thought, look, the kids would probably want to hang around with their parents until they're maybe 11 or 12 or so. Um, so I don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss out on seeing them grow up because you can't rewind the time. So that for me then became a big priority. And I said to my wife, look, by the time the kids are five, I'll be out to the day-to-day -day operations. So, uh, and my partner was kind of thinking similar lines as well, mm -hmm. my, my co-founder. And so, you know, we had to persuade the board that, you know, the job of any good leader is uh is succession and uh we, we decided to put a succession plan in place and, and for us the succession plan had a few things that we had to put in place and so one of that was around uh the leadership organization so getting mm -hmm. the leadership the sea level but also the middle management and actually the middle management was probably the hardest bit because it was just it was uh trying to get people brought up into the organization but so the middle management piece so it's a leadership piece was one. Uh, two was around diversification because um, uh, in, uh, back then, about nine, even though we were in four countries then and five now, 90% of our revenue was still Singapore. Hmm. And about 90% of that was coming from real estate agents in Singapore. Right. And so it was a heavily reliant on one market, one customer type. And so we set out to try and diversify that by investing in the other markets, investing in the property developers. It's a very common in Southeast Asia, building new high rises, new properties is the property developers. And they play a very important role in, in the business model for, for mm -hmm. us. Um, and then also a bit of uh, inorganics, M&A. Um, mm -hmm. And so if we then fast forward two or three years later, we kind of went from 90% Singapore, 90% agents, real estate agents, to then about 50% Singapore, 50% outside of Singapore, and then about 60-something percent agents and 30-something percent real estate developers. So a lot more diversified business, which has served us well during, for example, COVID, 
you know, when yeah. you know, different markets of, you know, Vietnam got hit first. And so they kind of disappeared from the radar screen for like a month. And then, you know, then Singapore. And so every country kind of had different timing. And so we kind of saw that in our business because we were had agents, property developers, multiple markets, and now also financial services that kind of paid, paid for a while. So there was, you know, a big diversification piece, leadership piece, and then hiring a CEO. Uh, and mm. that kind of took the whole thing. The hiring CEO wasn't, wasn't a challenge. The other bits were more challenging. But And so that kind of took hard to finish about three years. Uh, okay. And then, you know, um, so 2018 was, was the year that I handed the all, over, all operations over um, and, you know, went to the kind of a part-time role. And uh, uh, probably, probably about 12 months of depression, <laughs> um, let, <laughs> uh, let, let go of the baby um and, yeah i was about to ask this is where i realized i had the ego right this is this yeah. is where i i thought i didn't have an ego uh <laughs> and then i realized i did have an ego because uh, i enjoyed all of the media interviews the tv interviews the radio interviews the newspaper yeah. interviews standing in front of the whole team you know you know chairing the leadership meetings uh and suddenly i had to sit in the background with my mouth shut and let the new ceo you know, do all the limelight stuff. And that, that was, that was tough. That was tough. And, uh, and I, I also realized that, you know, um, that I, at that stage, because of 10 years, you know, my kind of identity was kind of the same as probably guru. It was like one and the same. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, probably guru is some, someone else's the face of probably guru was starting to become the face. And that was, that was challenging for me. And, um, and my wife said, look, you've, you know, you've achieved everything you want to achieve, but you're, you're the most unhappy you've, I've ever known you. So why don't you take the CEO role back? And I said, no, 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 I don't want the CEO <laughs> role back. And she said, oh, come on, just cheer up then. Just, just get over it, right? Um, so I, I, I tried. It took, it took a while for me to get over it. Um, you know, it was crisis of confidence, you know, lack of purpose, uh, period wow. of mourning and depression. Um, all the stuff I knew would happen because I've, I've, I've met so many founders, asked them their experiences, and all of them have given me sort of similar stories. Yes. I thought I would be different, but no, I was the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a great, it's a great uh, illustration of how, as an entrepreneur, you, you end up building something that goes beyond you. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the new CEO and, and the team has just done an amazing job. And, uh, mm. and I'm on the board and, you know, we, you know, so I'm quite involved in the business, uh, particularly this year has been quite, quite uh, busy um, on the board. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a great team. We have a great team and, uh, yeah, and the team is very, very self-sufficient. So each of the C-levels, you know, they, they, they just run their own parts of their business. Mm. Um, which is, you know, which is very different to when, you know, I was running it. It was, you know, it was still quite hands-on, but now it's a, it's a very professional corporate organization, which is well-run and it's, and it's, uh, and, and a, you know, a board of, you know, some, you know, really seasoned people from large, the largest private equity companies in the world and the TPG, uh, KKR, um, and we're just bringing on, um, on, on part of the News Corp, uh, family onto the board as well at the moment. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, exciting times. I have a question for you then. Um, yeah. How has entrepreneurship impacted impacted you personally? What what have you learned about yourself? Oh, it's a, it's a, uh, Apart that you have your an, an ego, that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's um, what was it was it taught taught me. Um, I, I guess I've learned a lot around, and I, I reflect a little bit. I think the first. Two years of building property year. I learned more in those two years than I probably did in, I think, pretty much all of my corporate career. 
mm. um, because there are no rules and you have to kind of make things up as you go along and it's and that's quite stressful and you don't have any resource don't have any cash don't have any brand you know how do you hire talent when you don't have any of that how do you convince someone to join you uh, you know you're going to kind of sell the dream you know we're kind of creating this this great new world where consumers are in control of the property process um and uh yeah so i think um that that was that was that was a, that was an important time i think what else, what else did i learn um i think the you know the key i learned a lot about building business i learned a lot around you know uh, the big issue really is you know focusing on the on the pain on the problem mm. um you know so focusing on you know what's the one problem you're trying to fix not trying to spread too thin but really go back to the core and think about the one problem you're trying to fix um, in terms of myself, I guess, you know, I, I, I guess I know I'm competitive. I know I'm trying, to pr- I'm trying to prove people wrong all the time. And so that's kind of been the driver for my, you know, determination, I guess. Um, and so I, I, I saw that in, you know, in real uh, evidence, particularly in the first seven or eight years of building Probably Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that grit and determination that me and my co-founder, you know, endured the seven days a week, you know, in Malaysia 45 times a year and you know um t- Indonesia 35 times a year and just just uh, that sheer grit and determination I guess I kind of saw that in myself as well um yeah yeah I don't know what else that's, that's probably about it actually you were not inactive for such a long time because you you ended up uh creating a new company yeah right? <laughs> oh can you tell us a little bit uh, about planet rise Yeah, so in, in 2018, as I said, you know, I, I stepped back of the business and you know, handed out all, all operations, and I was that, that was very much spent time with my family. And in mm. 2018, uh, for those who remember, it was it was quite a important year in terms of climate change. Um, there were it was the year that you know Larry Fink wrote a letter to the shareholders around look, in the future we're going to be moving money away from fossil fuel. Mm. Uh, Greta was going on the campaign, but most importantly, it was just you know, record after record was starting to be broken, you know, in terms of floods, you know, wildfires, temperatures, uh, rainfall. Um, and it was, it became, and it, it became to a point where I thought, you know, is it, I started to think about what kind of world are we creating for my kids? Yeah. And, um, and I got a little bit, I got, I got worried. And I, I do get worried um, because I think things are, you know, going kind of bigger and actually growing, again, worse, faster than we, than we anticipated. And um, all the things I took for granted, whether it's skiing or, you know, swimming in oceans or walking through forests and seeing nature, you know, my kids might not be able to have that or their kids might not be able to have that in the future mm. because, you know, because we're just killing the planet. And um, so, I, you know, I could sit there and spend my money and have a good time, but I wouldn't be able to look my kids in the eye um, and say, look, I, I, I saw what was happening, but I just ignored it. So I decided that my key driver going forward in terms of from a work point of view um, was going to be climate change. What, just playing a very small part. What can I do to influence, you know, and, and, and change climate change and, and address some of the climate change challenges? Um, and so what do I know about climate change? I mean, it's such a, when you, when you dive into it, you know, you meet climate scientists who have been studying it for 30 years or someone studying one part of battery technology for 30 years. And it's very humbling because, you know, there's, once you start going beneath it, there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, so what, what can I really do? And I guess what I, what I'm, what I have been doing is building businesses, um, you know, helping startups or helping grow startups, um, uh, raise money or, or investing in startups, which I've been doing for the last 18 years or so. 
so I know I know business building, uh, and I and I see this big problem, and I you know see entrepreneurs. What what really good entrepreneurs do is solve big problems. Yes. And what what is a bigger problem than climate change? Um, and what is a bigger opportunity than climate change? You know, because this whole decarbonization of every single industry, whether it's travel, whether it's energy, when it's you know energy production, um, whether it's food production, is it all has to decarbonize and will decarbonize and governments around the world, investors around the world, you know, companies around the world and consumers around the world are starting to move their dollars and, and make decisions based on that. So it presents a huge challenge for us all, but it also presents a huge trillion dollar opportunity. And mm. so I thought, okay, so I see that I see the challenge and I see the opportunity, which is obviously the first part of, you know, how an entrepreneur addresses things. And I also know how to build businesses and, and help, you know, companies to, to grow. So I try and bring those two together. And that's essentially what, what, what we're doing now is, is uh, working with companies which are first and foremost um, trying to mitigate one gigaton of greenhouse gases in the next decade, roughly, mm-hmm. um, and impact positively the lives of 10 million people. Um, and so companies that can do one or both of those um, you know, we're putting our money into and we are, uh, are helping and supporting them um, with their growth. So to date, you know, we're 13 or 14 companies in the portfolio, um, ranging from decarbonizing construction to, you know, alternative proteins to cell based um, food um, to new battery technology, um, new water uh, technology, clean air technology. Um, and so, yeah, things that are, are starting to have an impact on, on, on climate change and, and, and affecting, you know, people, improving the livelihoods of people. Yes. Entrepreneurs can actually change things over. Yes. Um, yeah. Most, most of the entrepreneurs I've been talking about, no, not most of the entrepreneurs, all the entrepreneurs I've been talking about, they all crave uh, impact. Yeah. All of them. And you're exactly. like, a, you're, you're another uh, example of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, th- I just think it's, it's, just a, it's just a huge opportunity. I think, you know, we've just on the back of this whole sort of technology internet boom uh, and the next, the next trillion dollar boom is going to be green tech. Um, and we're just starting to see it. And it, it reminds me a little bit, you know, if I, if I stand back a little bit and reflect, you know, so roughly 20 years ago, you had this whole digitization wave. And the first thing that like a lot of companies did was they hired their chief digital officer, the CDO. And this person was like, no power sits in the corner of the office <laughs> and now the company goes right we're now digitized um yeah. <laughs> and then you know 10 20 years later you know those companies are digitized and i think now what we're seeing last you know three or four years is companies hiring their chief sustainability officer uh, again you know lots yeah. of talk not much action um and now we're slowly um moving into some action and you know particularly europe is, is doing a great job here and uh, really driving things through regulation uh, and standardizing you know the whole taxonomy uh, and you know the words that we use now we describe things is really really important and uh, you know pushing towards carbon tax you know not like five dollars um but closer to you know 70 to 100 dollars um, mm. per ton it's where it needs to be and you really start thinking about the impact of all these greenhouse gases emissions you know it's not just you know it's health it's economic it's planet it's people it's you know it impacts so much and uh, putting a real price on 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 carbon emissions is great and i think eu's did a great job on that the us is finally woken up china's just already its biggest polluter but it's also by far the largest already so you're starting to see some action at least which is mm. encouraging but we're just at the start and, you know, and we just, you know, the next, the next, you know, one to two decades, there's going to be huge 
opportunity um, needs to be a huge opportunity as we transition from old fossil fuel based economies to you know decarbonized economies um, and that is going to be you know trillions of dollars of investment jobs um, and new businesses are being created and uh, you know we're going to see the equivalence of Amazon in, in the green in the green tech world uh, mm. being created you know in the next few years and so that's really exciting indeed what are you the most proud of? Oh, uh, I think, uh, you know, um, what I'm most proud of, I think probably uh, the creation of, <laughs> uh, it sounds a bit funny, creation of my twins, I think probably, yeah. uh, because that was such a, that was a challenge in itself. And you know, it was a, my double, double startup, I guess. <laughs> um, but also just a realisation that, you know, from a leadership point of view, you know, being a parent um, is probably the most challenging. <laughs> um, you know, there's no rule book. You know, it's, it's a quite an important job being a parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, there's no, there's not much rule books around. You're not, you're not educated. You get suddenly you've got these one or two or whatever, you know, things are dependent on you and you're going to try and shape and support them. Um, but, you know, you don't have a rule book or any, uh, so that's, I think it's quite hard. And uh, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's a different set of leadership challenges. So I feel proud about where they, what, what actually have them and where they are now, nine years later, um, and what kind of people they are. But um, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a proud, but also challenging. <laughs> <laughs> and if you take all the experience that you have acquired today and into one recommendation, that you would give to entrepreneurs, other entrepreneurs out there, what would it be? It would be to um, identify and focus on a big pain. Mm. Identify the problem that you want to address um, and make sure it's a big problem and then go and start working on that, fixing that problem. My show is called Interviews Cracking the Entrepreneurship Code. So have you cracked the code? Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think it's like a, a zero to one binary thing. I think it's an ongoing. I think it's an ongoing process. You know, I, almost every week I learn new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learn new things about you know, I guess the business that I had built or the businesses I have built, but also the ones I found as I'm working with as well. I learn new things around building, uh, you know, uh, businesses all the time. You know, and, and you know, with my investor hat on, you know, I've invested in 26 companies and and working alongside some of those founders and just seeing that okay, the way I did it was one way, but actually they're doing it a different way, and actually mm. they're being successful as well, doing it a different way. And so, um, you know, uh, so yeah, I'm constantly learning. I think, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing journey. I think, yeah, right. keep learning or just keep learning all the time. I think. Last question. How can people contact you? Um, they can uh, email me at steve at Planet Rise or LinkedIn forward slash Steve Mel. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to, uh, to talk to anybody, particularly around sustainability. Okay. If you're building a business, if you're building the next green tech unicorn, I'll be very, very happy to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the message is spread out. Thank you very much, Steve, for your time today. It was a blast. Great, Lauren. Very great, great to meet you as well, and uh, look forward to staying in touch. And uh, thank you all for listening. Before you leave, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Keep on building outstanding businesses. See you next time. Bye bye.